continue on in our series this morning. Grab your Bibles, open up your uh, phones or your tablets, whatever you read scripture on this morning. And have it there at 1 Peter chapter 5 as we take a look at uh, a little bit of our, our enemy. You know, as I title it, the hunter. And, and, and I'm not um, a hunter. I've never really been one. There's a lot of reasons. Mainly because I didn't grow up with that in my house. So many of you are, and I marvel at what you can do. I marvel at your ability. You know, but, um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience in that way, but I know Scripture says we have an enemy who is on the prowl. And I know this much about hunting. We don't go out in the open and announce to the whole world what you are about to do. You know, uh, I know Pastor Ken uh, loves to fish, and, you know, maybe he'll get back to fishing. And used to hunt. Uh, and, and, and I've done more fishing than anything. I know that I don't go to wherever I'm fishing and let all the fish know that, hey, I'm here to come catch you. You know? Uh, that just isn't going to work well. I know for those of you who hunt uh, very well, you cover your scent, you go when you cannot be seen. Uh, and, and it is at those moments that the prey come out. You know, with that. And, and as we go through this, I think we need to understand that those are apt illustrations and, and analogies of, that Scripture uses to our enemy. But we must back up just maybe a little bit, a little bit to get there. We all have a worldview. And the worldview is simple. is how you make sense of life. And so the worldview of uh, Scripture is different than a Western worldview, okay? We don't naturally live in the same um, worldview that Jesus and the early disciples had. And all the worldview is, is we're looking out at this world that we all live in, and we're making sense of it. So we all have one. One way of thinking about it is like glasses. Some of you have to wear glasses to see things clearly. Other words, don't. But our worldview helps us to see things clearly. But the world doesn't change, even if someone comes from two different viewpoints. Does that make sense? You know? We have the same world. It's this foundation, this worldview, is how we make sense of it. And so to some extent, the Western world, by almost default, does not believe in a supernatural very much. It is contrary to our natural worldview, where if it can't be seen, it doesn't exist to some extent, very rational, very linear, very much those ways. The worldview of the cultures around when scripture was written had this natural inclination to the supernatural. In fact, still parts of our world it is that. I think of the Middle East, there's a lot of the supernatural. I think that's one of the ways that uh, those who are coming to Christ out of, out of Islam, one of the ways they report doing that is through visions and dreams where Jesus shows up. 
They're open to that idea. If I came to you this morning and said, I had a vision and a dream of Jesus last night, 90% of you would go, he is off his rocker. Even more so than normal. With it. That's not acceptable to some extent. So we go in this way of, uh, of where we will deny the supernatural. And the biblical worldview that we need to try to have as we submit ourselves to, to Scripture is there exists this world that we cannot always see. There is something else. Part of, I think, what is a Christian biblical worldview is this understanding that God, Jesus, they're one and the same, have, has always existed. Jesus has not been created. That's important for us to understand. He's always existed. For if he is created, then he isn't the supreme being. But if he's uncreated, as scripture says, then that means something. And scripture will reveal what that is as we interact. And if Jesus has always existed, then we read in creation, we read in scripture that he created all things. Colossians 1.16 says these words, For in Jesus all things were created. He is the creator. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. As we submit ourselves to scripture, we realize there is a visible world and there is invisible. The supernatural. Thrones and powers and rulers, all things have been created through him and for him. Because he has always existed. You know, there's always debates on how the world began. To be honest with you, none of us know, none of us were there. There's only one who has been there, and that is our Lord. But we have things that, uh, you know, we say a lot. You know, we even have this question what came first, the chicken or the egg? I'm here to tell you, Daniel has informed me he has ordered a chicken and an egg from Amazon, and he will let us know what came first. Yes, that is the jokes we have in my house. Siri. Uh, <laughs> and he gets a point. But we have this. Let's be honest. We don't know if the chicken or the egg came first. God created whatever he wanted first within this world. But all things that are not God all things that are not Jesus, everything and everyone else is created. Which means something. Especially as we get to our text this morning. It means that Satan, the enemy, is a created being. He is not on equal footing with the Lord. He cannot be on equal footing with the Lord. For he is created. He may be powerful, and that is true. He may be uh, capable of doing things that you and I and our human ability are not able to do. But he is not all powerful. He is also not always present everywhere. As much as I have tried over and over and over, I've yet to master how to be in two places at once. 
And let me tell you, don't be in need to be in two places at once. With this. And especially, you know, parents and families, you get this because you have kids that go in opposite directions. You wish you could be there, but can't here. You know? Uh, right, Miles? You wish you could be in two places at once? Yeah, sometimes. You know, it would be nice, but we can't, and neither can Satan. And so one of the things I want us to be reminded of, and I think it's important as we get to this text, is Satan can't be right here in St. Paris and in the other part of the world at the same time. So let's not make him any more powerful than he is. He has an army with him. But as we may learn in the weeks ahead, even then, he is outnumbered. But we can't discount the truth. And the truth is, one of the images of Satan is a lion ready to devour. And this, you know, I, I know enough about, I've watched enough YouTube that I know lions don't just kind of pounce and, and kind of prance on the safari and let the gazelles and everything else say, hey, I'm hungry, who wants to be lunch today? That wouldn't make much sense. They kind of hide a little bit in the bushes. They blend in. And then when they attack, they attack. And Peter, in his word choice here, he says, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, someone to gulp up and like one Bite. One bite. He's not just some nice, innocent being. He's not this little red guy with horns and a pitchfork, you know, kind of thing. That can be useful, but to some extent, that isn't scriptural. He is ready to devour. But he's not, I, I don't believe what Peter's talking here is devouring as just in killing. Because, you know, the goal of Satan isn't to send us on to glory. The goal of Satan is to devour us in such a way that we become like everyone else who doesn't know Jesus. That we look no different than the world around us. And how does he sometimes devour us? I think this morning, uh, what, what I see in our text, what I, what I see as I've studied is maybe this question. Does anyone care? Does anyone care about me? Does anyone care about you? If you have this sense that no one cares about you, then you must you must always stand up for your rights, and when something isn't right, you've got to let somebody else know that you need something. Here in Peter, the whole book, and, and I know uh, Ron taught us on Wednesdays, and I think those lessons are online, fbcstparis.com uh, slash Wednesday, you walked us through the book of Peter. You did, right, Ron? I'm not just thinking you did, but you actually did, right? Okay, you know, proof that I listened to Ron on this case, okay? You know, uh, he's shaking his head, no, you know. 
Uh, we are blessed to have great teachers, Ron being one of them. With that, but part of the issue going on in First Peter is they're being attacked, they're being persecuted. And, and, and the part of their, their struggle is, should I, should I stand up for what is wrong? And part of what Peter is saying is, you don't have to. You don't have to let everybody know they're trampling on you. You've got to stand for Jesus. But it doesn't mean you have to always go and pick the battle, the fight. In fact, he says just before this, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, to God and to others. If you do not believe someone cares, you will not want to humble yourself. Because then your needs may not get met. You may not get what you think you deserve. One of the weaknesses of democracy, though I think democracy is the best form of government, one of the weaknesses of democracy is we get this idea that we ought to have a say about everything. We ought to know everything. And my opinion is the most important opinion of life. The world of scripture never knew that kind of idea. They lived under rulers where the ruler had final say. One of our struggles in Western Christianity, I believe, is the fact that we think we need to tell God how we ought to do it, because our opinion matters. And we're starting to see that time and time again, Scripture says, no, no, no. Humble yourselves. Cast yourself upon God. Paul Peter here says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I know this much about fishing, though it has been years since I fished. I can't catch anything if I don't deliberately cast out. It's a deliberate, intentional act. Cast your anxieties upon him. Because he cares for you. The question the enemy will try to get us to believe is no one cares. You gotta do it on your own. Bring yourself up by your bootstraps. Keep going, keep going. It's all about you. And scripture says, no, it is not. Cast yourself upon God. Because he cares. I quote this scripture a lot with anybody I work with. Some of you have been in my office and you talk to me about your anxiety. I say, let your anxiety drive you to the Lord. He says, he doesn't say, don't be anxious. He says, cast that anxiety upon the one who really cares. And he also says, uh, you know, humble yourself under God's mighty right, mighty hand. In Scripture, the mighty hand of God is not this hand of judgment ready to pounce you just because you say, I'm not quite sure. The mighty right hand is the one that, that parted the Red Sea so the nation of Israel could walk out. Cast your, your anxieties upon him. Now, sometimes in the Christian world, will say, well, Scripture says, do not be anxious. 
says in Ephesians, do not be anxious about anything, but let us continue on, but in everything through prayer. Yes, Jesus says, do not worry. But he says, focus then on the one who provides. That's what Peter's trying to say. In this world where there's a lot of trouble for the early church, where they are being persecuted, they are being cast out of economic realities. There's, he's saying, look, cast out upon the Lord because he's able to actually do something. And he gives. Whatever you are going through at this moment, know God cares about you. He does. Others may not. I don't know. I believe this church does. But even if you don't feel like anyone cares, when we submit ourselves to a worldview of Scripture, we know that God always cares. And this is why we come to the Lord's table every month. A reminder that God cares every month. And I know that can become routine. I know sometimes, you know, we think, well, you know, do we do it rough? Do we not do it often enough? But every Sunday we should proclaim to one another, God cares about you and about me. And because of God's care, there are certain things we need to do in response to his care. And I just kind of uh, put it together. He says in verse 8, Be alert and sober-minded. And I say this, Keep your head. We must keep our heads in this world. You know, sober-minded. I, I work with uh, people who have addictions. I've been around enough people who have been drunk in this world. And, and, uh, and I know this, whenever they're drunk, they're not thinking clearly. Whenever we're addicted by anything, they're not thinking clearly. Either they think they can do something they can't, okay? Or they don't think they can do something they can. And, and there's a wide variety. I've seen the results of addiction even in my own family. On my mother's side, there is an addiction there that has cost a lot. I've seen in others, not an addiction to a substance, but addiction to feelings, addiction to uh, work, addictions in other ways that get them to not think clearly. One of the ways people get quote-unquote sober is they first have to realize their thinking is not correct. We call it denial. If they think they can do something on their own, I can almost guarantee you they will never become sober from whatever addiction they have. Because you can't do it alone. If you're addicted to feelings, so you're always looking for that next high of feeling something, you have to realize that that substance, that feeling, will never give you what you really want. And you need to work on that. Secondly, you cannot become uh, sober long-term by focusing on the thing that enslaves you. 
you have to look beyond sex. Within alcohol, you can't be looking at the alcohol and saying, I'm going I'm to stay away from you, I'm going to stay away from you, I'm going to stay away from you. You're still focused on the addiction. With those with an internet addiction that I work on, we have to get beyond the internet and into something else. And you must replace what space that took up with something different. This is what Paul is saying here, or Peter is saying here. Focus on the Lord. Let him take that space up with keeping your head. This is why. In the list of the fruit of the Spirit, in the list of sins, Paul doesn't talk just about addictions as we know it, but talks about the addictions of rage, of jealousy, of envy, and not of self-control. We can, and I believe in our world that has highlighted emotions so much, we have an addiction to feeling an emotion. Whether it's rage at anything that goes against our viewpoint, or whether it's seeking that next high of being loved and accepted, realizing that it makes us do things that aren't very helpful. And we must become sober-minded with it. And when we keep our head low, we are also alert. This is why many, especially with alcohol, when they become sober, and sober for many years, they also don't go playing around in bars. Okay? Alertness means there's some things that may not work. Okay? It doesn't mean they focus on the addiction, they just, they're aware that that is something that will devour them. We as Christians can't stick our heads in the sand about the reality of our enemy. We must be alert, but we don't have to be looking all the time because actually I think what Peter is saying here is not just alert about, the, about uh, our enemy. He's also saying be alert because Christ is coming back. Jesus said as much many times in the gospel, be alert, I'm coming back. Focus on the fact I'm coming back. We proclaim every month. At least I try to remind us that Jesus said not only is this in remembrance of me, but it also points out the fact he said, I'm coming back. Because I'm going to do this anew with you in glory. Be alert, church, he says. We have a job to do. And when we do those things, we can understand what Paul, what Peter says again. I'm going to confuse the two all night or all morning. Hopefully not all night. You know, what was that for, son? He's already bored, huh? That's all right. He says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. You are not alone in your sufferings. Man, isn't that a lie we fought into? No one knows what I've gone through. I'm all alone in my pain. And Peter says, your sufferings or not, you're not alone in that. And he goes on to say, and after you've suffered a little while, because if we're alert to what is coming, we know in the end, this world is a small blip. Though the trials seem all encompassing, they're not the end of the story. Though your pain 
seems to go on indefinitely. It will not. And you're not alone. Someone is there with you. Others have gone through your suffering. No, it may not be the exact suffering that you are going through. And they may not quote unquote know your exact sufferings and they can walk with you going, I've been somewhere similar. And this is where we must remember. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are never alone. He goes on to say, we are to resist our enemy, standing firm in the faith. This isn't a faith of just a personal, subjective faith in Jesus. This is the objective reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. It is something outside of us that we come to believe, that we internalize. So it isn't just, I feel like Jesus is enough. It is the idea that Jesus is who he said he is. And he died as he said he died, and that makes a difference. It doesn't matter if I feel like Jesus is there. The reality is, he is there. And in a world where everything is individualized, we need to realize that what Peter is talking about is not this individual faith of you figure it out, whatever you believe is okay. But a faith that says, no, what is the truth of Scripture? What, what is the reality of Scripture outside of myself that I can sub submit myself to? Because then there is hope. And he leaves his readers where I want to leave us today. The God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. One, God provides grace. He is the God of all grace. Where do you need grace? Where do you need it this day? And secondly, God is all powerful. To him be the power. To him is, to some extent, what Peter saying, the power forever and ever. Almost a throwaway sentence for us in English. But what he's reminding, in this idea of how do you stand firm, you know your enemy isn't all powerful. He's actually just, a, he has power, but he isn't the powerful one. Or in the times of First Peter, of persecution, in the times of, of being ostracized, it seems like the government of the day, the Rome of the day, was all-powerful, but there is one that is over all that. And that was their hope. The truth that God alone is the creator, that he will restore you, he will make you strong, he will help you stand firm to the end. Why? Because he's the God of all grace. And because he cares. In a world that I believe is asking over and over again, does anyone care? We as the church have a chance to step up. 
and show that yes, there is someone who cares. Uh, the other week, we go to GFS, where we get most of our food for Wednesday nights. And Wednesday night is one of our ways we can share with you all, but with others, somebody cares. You know, and I still pray about what it needs to look like and how we can care best. But uh, the, the other week, uh, I went in there, we order online, I go pick it up with Shannon or somebody. And you know, when you've been in the same store every week uh, for years, people start to get to know you. And that can be a good thing. Um, or depending on how you behave, it can be a bad thing. I'd like to admit it's been a good thing for them that they know me. Um, the other week, uh, GFS had an issue with their uh, credit card system. It was down company-wide in our whole region. Now, for a grocery store, think about this. All of a sudden, your way of doing business is cut down, and now you can only do cash or check. Well, I don't carry a checkbook, and I don't carry definitely as much cash as I would need. I don't think I had any cash that week, which is not surprising. You know, and so, um, you know, I'm going and I'm getting it. Well, fortunately, we paid ahead of time, and so it was in the system. I'm like, whew, you know, because I was going to go, well, I'll just leave the people. One, the manager made a statement right there. And I don't really know this manager personally, but she said to me, well, I was going to let you go regardless because I know who you are. Okay. I mean, every week it's First Baptist Church, you know. Uh, they, they know I'm associated with the church, but, you know. I, but I don't think it was because we were a church she was going to let us go by, all right? Because I think there was this idea, once she knows she's going to see me again, whether she likes it or not. Uh, then something else happened. I'm getting into the car or the van, and I'm putting everything in, and I'm going to give you two of something. I only ordered one. But no big deal. We'll use it. Look at my receipts. And I say, oh, they only charged me for one. So I have a practice there that I take the cart back because... You know, I think it's the nice thing to do. I take the card back and I go in and I say, here, you gave me two, I only paid for one. The first response out of this manager's mouth was, why are you so nice? Think of that. Why are you so nice? When people look at you and say you are nice, that you have a history of being nice to them, would they be confident? And I, one, I was taken aback because I'm like, and I told her, I'm like, look, I think this is the right thing to do. If everyone took something that you gave them and didn't pay, that doesn't help anybody out. She goes, yes, but why are you so nice? I think it's also a history of I'm nice to people, or I'm trying to be. Okay? But, but it's also a reality. Our world is not nice. Our grocery store people are used to people being mad at them over everything. And maybe part of it is going because early in the pandemic, you know, they didn't have things we needed. I just asked, do you have any clue when it's coming? Most of the time it was, nope. Okay. How, what, can, what do you have that I can eat that I can use? And, and a history of being consistently, faithfully nice, people start to notice. And then this last week, I went, different manager. She may not have been a manager. I get my stuff. I interact with her every week. 
notice I'm from the church. And, and uh, finally, I think she had the guts to save me. So I'm curious, do you own the church? Or just work there, Mike? Huh. I bought from home the church. So I'm just a pastor there. And she became curious on why we come every week to get food. I can share the story of what we do. And go, and if you're ever in St. Peter's from 6 to 7 on a Wednesday, come get food. People notice when you're nice. Have you ever thought of that? In a world that is, people are wanting to know, does anyone care? The fact you and I are nice to people shows that we care. As you go out to lunch today, are you nice to your waiter, your waitress? Do you live, leave a tip that's worth leaving? I've heard many years from servers, the worst day to work is Sunday. Because of church. Because you may give the plate here, but you go out there and you eat, you barely tip the waitress or the waiter. Alright? Reputation as well. Be nice. Be nice with how you tip. Be nice how you treat them. How about the grocery store clerk that is trying to stop and not stop? Be nice. And in so doing, we are starting to suddenly remind people that God cares for them. Why? Because we know God cares for us. How? The cross. That we now are going to take time in 